I'm looking very much forward to what the Lord has in store for us in the coming weeks and coming months. Now, the Bible is not just a book of stories about neat men and women, about their character and about what they've accomplished. Even though we can learn a lot from stories of men and women like David and Daniel and Esther, the Bible is one cohesive, comprehensive story that goes from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and it's woven together with common threads. There's 66 books in the Bible. There's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and they all fit together to form God's plan of redeeming man. That's what it's all about. It's, God's, it's a love story, God's love story for us. If the theme of the Old Testament is God's promises made, this is what we talked about last week, then the theme of the New Testament is God's promises completed, God's promises kept. And we had talked about briefly last week that I love, it is such an awesome verse, and I, and I think I might have even taught this in 2 Corinthians, and I totally missed it. Or, or maybe I can blame it on Dean, he totally missed it. <laughs> I think it was me. It says, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises of God, these are all the promises in the New Testament, are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Last week we looked at some unifying or common threads that weave between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Common threads that start in Genesis and finish in uh, Revelation. And we are going to take a look at a few of those right now, just in review. The first two are divine authorship and instruction. Divine authorship and instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired. Not just New Testament, but all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Then it goes on to say, And it is profitable, or it is good, it is beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training up in righteousness. Every bit of Scripture... And I know that for some of you, you've been on this journey for a while, and you spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. For most of us, we've spent very little time in the Old Testament because we really feel like it's an inferior book. We feel like since the prophecies have already been fulfilled, that there's no use for it. But all of Scripture is inspired. It's all God's Word, and it's all profitable. It's all beneficial for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The third common thread going through the Bible, the first two are divine authorship and for instruction. The third one is atonement. Or if you will, at one minute, which means bringing two warring parties together, reconciling two warring parties. And we've been at war against God the Father since the time Adam and Eve sinned. In atonement, there's only one person that could atone for our sins, that could do a a sacrificial atonement for our sins, and that's the person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices year in and year out where they sacrificed bulls and goats. None of those sacrifices atoned or made right our sins. All they did was reminded the Israelites of their sin. It reminded them that they needed a Savior. One atonement throughout all Scripture, and that's a sacrifice. That's the laying down of Jesus Christ for you and I. It's the best news on the planet. The fourth common thread is the the gospel message. The gospel message is consistent from, from the beginning of Scripture until the end of Scripture. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the name of Jesus, but they knew the Christ was coming. They knew the Messiah was coming. And I love this scripture in Luke 24, 44 through 48. If you remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was walking down the, the road to Emmaus. Jesus had risen, and people were kind of freaked out, and people were talking about it. Even though Jesus told them that he was going to raise again from the dead after the third day, they were talking about that he's gone. And then Jesus walked down the road to Emmaus, and he showed up at a place where the disciples were, where the 11 apostles were. 
The 11 apostles were confused. They were asking questions. What's going on? I mean, what happened to Jesus? And this is what Jesus said to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, translation, everything written about me, Jesus, in the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What scriptures did they have then? They only had the Old Testament scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the gospel. The gospel is good news. And the good news started being preached. Actually, we're going to see that the good news actually, we first saw it in chapter 3 of Genesis. The gospel message isn't a new message that just became new after Jesus rose from the dead. He fulfilled the good news. He fulfilled the gospel. But the gospel is the same time in and time out. Saved by faith. We've been saved by faith from day one. This is such a fallacy and a misunderstanding in the church. People in the Old Testament were not saved by sacrifice. They were saved by faith. Genesis 15.6, this is kind of the, the poster verse of saved by faith. God came to Abraham and told him and Sarah that they were going to have a son when they were past childbearing age. And Abraham believed God and he trusted in God. When it said in Genesis, and he believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. We're saved by faith. and We've always been saved by faith. These are common threads in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Last is repentance. Repentance goes hand in hand with salvation. Repentance is necessary for salvation today, and it was necessary for salvation in the Old Testament. Faith is not an easy believe and save me from hell kind of deal. When you see John 3.16, believe, repentance is a part of that root word. And to be saved, there actually have to, we actually have to be walking in a certain way in sin and recognize that God is the one that saved us and turned from our sins. Repentance is necessary. And if you're here today where you have, you have professed Christ with your mouth, but your lifestyle is one that does not reflect Christ, and there is no conviction of sin, I would ask you to examine yourself. It's between you and the Lord. Okay? Faith is not a works-based faith. It's we're saved by grace through faith. But a part of that is repentance, is genuine faith. I love this saying that, I think I got it from Chuck Missler. It says, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Isn't that a great saying? The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. We're going to take a look, do an overview of Genesis here in just a minute. But as we carefully study the history of something, particularly its beginnings, it normally allows us to know its ultimate outcome before it happens. When we study the beginnings, a lot of times we can tell what the outcome is before it starts. Builders know that if you get the foundation wrong, nothing else much matters, does it? Observing a child's formative years will give us clues to what the rest of the life will look like. 
You show me how you began your day today, and I'll probably tell you something about what your day will be like. Beginnings are very significant. They can reveal everything from a trajectory to purpose, from methods to motives. Now, as we drop down from 40,000 feet looking at the entire Bible, we drop down to 20,000 feet to get a view of the 50 chapters of Genesis. We just want to examine how the book is put together. And the book of Genesis is referred to as the book of beginnings or the book of beginnings and generations. That's really the overall theme of Genesis. It's the first book of the law. The Pentateuch is what the Greek call the five books. Penta, five, tuk, law. Or the Torah, or the only five books of the law in Hebrew. It's the first of the 39 Old Testament books, and it's the first of all 66 books in the Bible. The author is Moses. Even though Genesis does not directly name the author, and although Genesis ends some three centuries before Moses even came on the scene, the whole of Scripture and church history are unified in their adherence to the Mosaic authority of the book of Genesis, all five books of the law. There are dozens and dozens of Scripture that point to Moses as the author. Acts 26.22 is just one of those, and it says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing, preaching nothing, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Whenever you hear New Testament authors quoting Moses, what they're quoting is one of the five books in the Pentateuch. Today we'll look at some key lessons that we learn from the book of Genesis in the coming months about God and ourselves. I don't know how long we're going to be in Genesis. It could, be, it could be months. I don't know. Dean, it could be years. Who knows where we're headed? In this great book, we will consider the display of God's holiness and judgment on sin. We'll take a look at His mercy. We will see everywhere His sovereignty. And at every turn, we're going to consider what our response should be. For if we read any scripture, any scripture, without asking the Lord what He wants our response to be, I believe we're not maximizing what the Lord has for us in Scripture. Our journey through Genesis will not be a scientific one. We're not going to spend a lot of time uh, debating and proving with scientific methods today the age of the earth. There are many questions that we look to science for. What kind of days does Genesis describe? How long ago is this supposed to have happened? Were all species created as they are now? Were Adam and Eve real people? Are all people descended from them? How much of the earth did Noah's flood cover? How much impact did it have on geological formations? We will not be spending a lot of time examining, improving, or disproving biblical text by looking at science. We're going to use text. We're going to use Scripture to prove Scripture. Because Scripture throughout the whole Bible points back to the Old Testament. Even a simple thing about who is the author of Genesis, Scripture tells us that. Scripture tells us how long each day is. All of Old Testament Scripture points to Jesus. And all of New Testament Scripture points back to Jesus. I pray that that as we teach, read, and apply the truths in this great book, we will be spurred on to know more of our Redeemer and desire to follow Him in ways that we've never considered before. My desire is that we just don't have information to defend a short-day theory or a long-day theory, to defend that there's no evolution I want us to come out of here more in love with Jesus. Because at the end of the day, folks, that's all that matters. 
I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years. In fact, a dear brother of mine the other night told me this, that they couldn't get over evolution. They couldn't get over that there wasn't some kind of cosmic explosion. And smart disciples told these men and women, you know what they told them? Just seek and understand who Jesus is. Understand that Jesus is the Redeemer and He's the only hope of the world. And guess what happened to these folks? Everything came into focus. Everything came into focus. So let's not be ones that argue these kind of of facts. Let's be ones that argue the supremacy of Jesus. And everything else will take care of itself. I love this quote from Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It says, Let faith support us where reason fails. Let faith support us where reason fails. And we shall think because we believe, not in order that we might believe. Let faith support us where reason fails, and we shall think because we believe, not in order that we might believe. Moses said it best in Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. There's things that we're never going to know. There's things that we don't need to know. We need to understand and know the character of God for the purpose of loving Him and living for Him in a deeper, more intimate, sold-out way. Someone once said, try to explain these things and you may lose your mind. But try to explain them away and you will lose your soul. We will receive Genesis best when we cooperate with Moses' own purpose in writing the book. It is the front end of the great narrative creation, fall and redemption, a narrative that has reached the glorious point of resurrection of Jesus, which is the down payment of an even more glorious consummation, the second coming of Jesus. The story is of a good world made by a good God and man's role in that world. The story of how the stain of sin affects everything. The story of how God intends to reverse those effects. He's in the process of sanctifying each of us that know Jesus, that we're looking more like Christ every day by His grace. The life that one lives in the body, one's connection to all of mankind, one's connection to and the responsibility for the created world, one's dependence on God's grace are all founded on the story that begins right here in Genesis. The most important thing is not knowing all that God knows, but is doing all that He tells us to do. One of my life verses, and I think there's a, there's a part of me that this is my life verse because I really do want to be obedient. Another reason it's my life verse is that I'm not a real scholarly guy. So I said, you know what? Don't try to figure it out. Just live it. James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in His doing. Folks, blessing comes not from knowing. Blessing comes from doing. Now, knowing is not a bad thing. We need to know. We're called to be noble Bereans in tearing apart the Scriptures and understanding what God has for us. But the blessing doesn't come simply in the knowing. The blessing comes on what we do with that knowledge. It's living it out. All right, Genesis can be divided into two major sections. Section 1 is is chapters 1 through 11. Section 2 is chapters 12 through 50. Let's take a look at the first 11 chapters. The theme for the first 11 chapters could be God displays His character through the world He created. 
Now, over 2,000 years of history was covered in these 11 chapters. There are some that say that half of the entire earth as we know it, up until today, the whole if it's from creation until today, February 15, 2008, that half of that time is in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That blows my mind. Over 2,000 years, which is only one-fifth of the entire 50 chapters of Genesis. This section is about the beginning of creation and everything except God himself. It's about all of creation except God existed. He didn't create himself. Nobody created God. Chapters 1 through 11 detail the beginnings of the universe, man, the Sabbath, marriage, sin, sacrifice and salvation, the family, civilization, government, and nations. All of that is in chapters 1 through 11. Also described in these first 11 chapters are creation, the fall of man, the judgment of the flood, and the judgment on the Tower of Babel. There's two main players in this first 11 chapters, Adam and Noah. We'll explore some other people as well, but it's Adam and it's Noah. In the first chapter of Genesis, we see God's self-existence. In other words, nobody made him. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He is self-existent. It's one of the things that just, it just kind of blows your circuits, doesn't it? It blows my circuits. I can't wrap my mind around it. He's not dependent on you and I. He's not dependent on anyone. He's not dependent on the weekly church offering. All that we have is already His, and He is the one who made us. The self-existence of God is the background. It's the background of the entire Bible. We need to understand that He is self-existent before we can even dig into the Bible. Let's take a look at chapters 12 through 50 briefly. The theme for that is God displays His character through special people. In this section, the camera zooms in from all of creation and the human race to one particular family who God is going to redeem mankind through, who God is going to reveal His special purpose. These chapters of 12 through 50 cover 300 years, 300 years of history. There's four great people, four main characters in these chapters. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There's a lot of supporting casts, but these are the main characters. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There's a slide that's coming up here that, that you're not going to be able to read. Joey, hit that next slide. I love family trees. And it is so cool when you see from Adam and Eve that the line of Jesus can be traced all the way through to Christ. All the way through to Christ. And we're going to look at the lineage of Jesus a lot when we look at Genesis. We're going to see God's sovereign hand. in, for example, when Cain killed Abel, that the Lord brought Seth. Seth literally means second chance. And out of the line of Seth comes Jesus. It's exciting. Let's take a brief look at some of the key lessons that we're going to learn about God and about ourselves over and over again as we walk through the book. The first one is we're going to learn a lot about God's holiness and judgment against sin. We're going to learn a lot about God's holiness and judgment against sin. We observe God's holiness and His commitment to condemn those who sin against Him in a seemingly constant sequence of events. You know, human beings, for the most part, we're a little bit dense. We're dense in the Old Testament, we're dense in the New Testament, we're a little bit dense in Windsor, Colorado today. And God is a holy God that doesn't tolerate sin. There's three instances. One of those in in Genesis is the fall, of course. That's where sin manifests itself, was through the fall. In Genesis 3.16, God said to the woman, after she sinned, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Ladies, did you know that sin from the beginning of time is the reason that there's pain in childbirth? I'm not talking about your sin today. I'm talking about sin that was brought into the world through Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.17, he said to Adam, And because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And men, I think work is probably a little bit harder today than it might have been. We're designed to work, and I'm not sure I fully understand it, but it's part of the fall. And last is, in Genesis 3.23, the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. He banished them from a relationship with the Father. But through Jesus Christ, that relationship has been restored. We also see God's holiness and judgment against sin in the flood. Get this, folks. The waters cover the entire earth as an expression of God's death-dealing wrath against men. And here's how the Lord describes it. It's a chilling phrase. It says, Every inclination of his heart, of man's heart, was evil. Every inclination of man's heart was evil. Has anyone ever told you that total depravity is not taught in the Old Testament? Wrong. We also see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not any different today. God is committed to His holiness and the holiness of His own people. Jesus was holy and He walked a sinless life. He lived the kind of life that God intended us to live and that we can increasingly live by the Holy Spirit's power. As a church, we want to encourage you to grow in holiness. To grow in holiness. Not as some works-based religion, but a desire to submit ourselves to the Lord's sovereign will. A desire to let the Holy Spirit live in us and live through us. I want to encourage you today as we get ready to take communion is to examine yourself. If there is any unrepentant sin in your heart, confess it to the Lord. God's forgiven. If you know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you put your faith and trust in Him and you've turned from your old ways, you are forgiven. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Done. But he does ask us to confess our sins. Second lesson we see taught in the Old Testament or in Genesis is God's mercy. Over and over again is God's mercy. Thank God that we not only find his holiness displayed in this book, but we find his mercy displayed as well. And actually, many of the places where we saw his judgment, we also see his mercy. If there were no mercy, Jesus would not have come. The fall what is called the proto-gospel, he promises that the woman's offspring will crush the serpent's head. This blows me away. After they were banished from the garden, after sin infected the world, immediately God provided a plan for redeeming mankind. His mercy was shown immediately after his judgment. The flood, God mercifully remembered Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah, he mercifully remembered Abraham and Lot and Lot's family. Rachel, I can go on and on. Rachel was barren, and God mercifully remembered Rachel. She became pregnant and gave birth to her son Joseph. And if Joseph had never been born, everybody would have perished and would have broke the lineage of Jesus that came from Judah. There are many other examples of God's mercy shown in the pages of Genesis. I pray that you know the reality of God's saving grace and that you understand His mercy, His loving kindness. Third lesson is God's sovereignty. It's all over Genesis. God's sovereignty in Genesis. The God we pray to is the same God who created, that breathed life into each of us. The God whose praise we sing is the God who made us. 
God's sovereignty in the flood, the God whose word we are now considering is a God who righteously and terribly judged the world in the flood. God chooses. God chose Abraham, not his brother Nahor. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob and not his brother Esau. God is sovereign. Can't explain it, but his character is perfect. He's loving, he's faithful, he's trustworthy, and he's sovereign. We saw God's sovereignty in Joseph's life. Remember at the end what Joseph said to his brothers? What you meant to me was for harm. The Lord meant it for good. Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit to be killed. And God's sovereign plan was to have Joseph rule over all the land and store up food so that they can survive the seven-year famine, so that the lineage of Christ could be preserved, and that Jesus could come out of that lineage and lay his life down for you and I. The last lesson that we see all throughout Genesis is that we're called to respond in obedience and in faith. We see it all throughout the book of Genesis. Noah is a great example. It says in 6, 9 that Noah was a righteous man. It says that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. It said Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. Was Noah perfect? No. Did he share our depraved human nature? Absolutely. Was he completely sinless? Nope. In fact, we see in Genesis 8.21, God says that Noah's heart was evil. Even though he obeyed and he was righteous, that his heart was evil. Was Noah better than other people? Better than us? No. Noah simply believed the promises God had made. He responded to God's word by having faith in them, by trusting that God's words were true and should be obeyed. That's what we're called to. The words in this book, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, are true, and they're to be lived by. We see Abraham's response of obedience and faith. He obeyed when God told him to leave his father's home in Haran. He believed God's promise to give him offspring and to multiply them greatly, even though Abraham and Sarah were both well beyond childbearing ages. He believed God's promise to give him the land. Yet we observe Abraham's remarkable faith most clearly in Genesis 22. When God asked the unfathomable, he asked Abraham to sacrifice, to kill his beloved son. And Abraham was ready to obey that. Folks, our Creator is holy and perfect, and He made us to be like Himself. But we've all sinned, and we've separated ourselves from Him. Every one of us brought His rightful judgment upon ourselves. Every one of us. And honestly, we deserve hell. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're not going to get it. Because Jesus who is prophesied in the book of Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus willingly laid down His life for you and I. He took the full wrath of God that we deserved. We deserved it. The full wrath of God. And then He infused His righteousness into us so that we have the same righteousness as Jesus. And He declared us. He justified us. and made us innocent. So that when He looks at you and I, he sees us as innocent. Yet being a holy God, there's still consequences for unrepentant sin. And there's areas in each one of our lives. There's these little foxes in our lives that are nipping at us. And the Lord wants us to confess those and give those to Him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can help us overcome those little foxes, those little sins in our lives. But in the meantime, He loves us. He loves you and I. 
And he loves us to discipline us, as it says in Hebrews 12, lovingly discipline us when we step out of his will. Here's my prayer for each of us as we march through Genesis. And I'm not sure who said this. Probably should know this. But the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As we march through Genesis and we see God's judgment and His holiness, and we see His mercy and we see that He's sovereign and we see that He demands a response from us, let's remember that the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That this life, this Christian walk, is one to be enjoyed and to glorify Him with all of our thoughts with all of our action. And the verse that I just want to close on is Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Folks, when we study Scripture, when we look at Genesis, this is where it should take us, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself.